Uh, we're continuing our teaching series today that we're calling Experiencing Spiritual Vitality. And last week, if you were with us, we looked at how the source of authentic spiritual vitality, that the source of spiritual strength, of power, of insight, is not a program, it's not a formula, it's not a particular outlook on life. It's a person. It's the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that Holy Spirit, who we receive when we turn in faith to Jesus, is for us a great counselor who seeks to guide us in life. He seeks to empower us as we walk and follow him. And he seeks to seal us as God's own children. So this week, what I'd like to do is kind of to lay a broader biblical background to help us understand, maybe remember, what the Holy Spirit has come to provide us with. And in coming weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the ways we can quench the Spirit or some of the fruit of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. But today what I want to do, I want to just step back a bit and, and to see kind of the, the broader biblical story within which the Holy Spirit is given to us. And, and this might feel like a bit of a meandering journey. I'm aware of that. But I, I truly, I think it will help, hopefully, and it will expand our appreciation about what the Holy Spirit offers to us and seeks to do through, through us. And, and I think in this, it may be grander than what you think. All right, so let's start here. Let's go back to the beginning of Scripture. And, and we know that God chose the Hebrew people through Abraham and his descendants to be the instrument of blessing for all nations. And again, the Hebrew people were largely an agrarian, agricultural people. I mean, kind of like farmers today, their lives really were oriented around the seasons of, of planting, of fertilizing, of harvest. So God, in his wisdom and grace, he gave them symbols, kind of patterns for their lives to, to remind them of his love, his blessing and presence that linked in naturally with the flow of their lives as farmers, right? And so, for example, God gave this guidance to the people of Israel. This is in the book of Leviticus. If you want to turn there, right near the start of Scripture, Leviticus chapter 23. And as we hear these words, remember, this is the word of God to us. And we read in Leviticus 23, verse 15, this guidance from God. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. And he's referring to the Sabbath uh, after the Passover celebration. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So what God is prompting the people of Israel here is in a particular feast, a celebration, and this celebration, the Hebrew name was Shavuot. You want to say that along with me? Shavuot. I want you to remember this. And now it had several other names. One was the Feast of Weeks also. It took place seven weeks after Passover. And, and Shavuot, understand, it was a, the second most important Jewish feast after Passover. And, and Shavuot was a social feast. And it had four characteristics I want us to catch on this. For one, one characteristic of Shavuot was that it was oriented around community. It was a pilgrimage festival, really, a great gathering of God's people. I mean, so they, a homecoming of the Jewish people from around the world, they would come together for this celebration. 
Secondly, it was characterized by blessing, meaning it was enjoying God's abundant gifts, his harvest, the thanksgiving. They would literally offer a wave offering, as we read, which would be taking grain and so on and waving it before God as recognizing his blessing. Thirdly, it was a time of rejoicing. This would be a time of, of music, of dance, of dance, of psalms sung to God. In fact, some of the psalms we have in scripture were written specifically for Shadwat. And, and this is one of the guidances given in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, which is right after Numbers, I think. There it is. Deuteronomy 16 and verse 10 says, Then you shall keep the feast of weeks, Shavuot, to the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. That was right at the heart of the celebration, this rejoicing. Now, have you been to a Jewish celebration? You know, they know how to celebrate. They know how to rejoice. I mean, rejoice before the Lord your God. Then verse 12 says, and you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So part, the fourth characteristic of Shavuot was this. It was a celebration of freedom. It was a time they were remembered. They were in bondage. They were in slavery, but God has brought them to freedom. Okay, so what distinguished these, uh, this feast of Shavuot? Four things. Let's read them together. Community, blessing, rejoicing, celebration of freedom. All right, there we have it. That's a picture of it for us. Okay, now, now take that in your mind. Now let's fast forward several hundred years. And Jesus, he's finished his ministry. He'd been crucified after celebrating Passover with his disciples. He had risen from the grave. He had appeared to his disciples. He had ascended to heaven. And now his disciples are huddled in that upper room where Jesus told them, go there and wait. And then 50 days after Passover, 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, on the day of Shavuot, also known as the Feast of Weeks, or the Greeks called it Pentecost. This is what we read took place. This is in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, this familiar text, it tells us what happens. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost, Shavuot that is, arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And the divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Speaking a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. All right. So here's the question. Why did God choose Shavuot, Pentecost, as a day upon which he would pour out the gift, the blessing of his Holy Spirit? It's a great question, right? Now, we just think back quickly. What again were the four defining characteristics of Shavuot? Let's put them up there again. Okay, it was community, blessing, rejoicing, the celebration of freedom. And that's what the Spirit was bringing. God had them celebrating Shavuot for centuries, literally, to prepare them to have in their mind an understanding of what the Spirit was bringing. So let's unpack how that was expressed with the giving of the Spirit, all right? Let's move to the next phase of this. And, and let's look at Jesus and his ministry. Now, when Jesus came to earth, he came with a message. He, and this is what he said. He said, there is this fear, there, there is this realm that he talked about as the kingdom of God. And kingdom language was very familiar in that day. 
And the kingdom of God is a realm in which there is authentic love, there is no sin, there's truthfulness, there's nothing small-minded or petty, there's no regret, no guilt. And everything that happens in this realm, it brings glory, delight to God. And it's a realm that God reigns over as king. And it's real. It, It exists right now. But Jesus said also, there's another realm. We can call it the kingdom of earth. And, and this is a realm that we're most familiar with. And, and this one is pretty messed up. It's not going so well in this kingdom. And so Jesus came with this message and this plan. It was this. I am bringing up there, down here. The kingdom God, that God the Father has in heaven, is going to be expressed here now on earth through me. And so Jesus taught us to pray that this would increasingly be the reality. In the Lord's Prayer, which we just expressed not long ago, where Jesus said, okay, you want to know how to pray? Pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done where? On earth now, as it is in heaven. Let the reign of God that's expressed in the heavens be expressed here right among us. And in Jesus' person, in his body, that actually began to be expressed here on earth. And if we want to know what life in the kingdom looks like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. Because Jesus was living this kind of kingdom of God life here on earth. And therefore, we recognize this. Jesus' gospel, his good news, is therefore not, here's the minimum you need to do to get into heaven when you die, right? That's not his message. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, here's the way you get a ticket to heaven. Jesus' gospel, rather, more widely, is this. The kingdom of God is now available to human beings, to anyone. And if you want to, you can begin to live in that kingdom right now, right here. And that kingdom, that gospel includes the free forgiveness of our sins. Because of Jesus' death on the cross for us. It it includes the promise of life with God forever. A life in his eternal kingdom that won't be stopped by our physical death. And it's a new life that starts here, it starts now, and we don't have to wait to start living it. Okay. Now Jesus said, when people get this, when they get the kingdom of God, when people start to understand what is at stake, when they can see what can happen, they want this kingdom life more than they've ever wanted anything. And so a lot of what Jesus did was tell stories about the kingdom of God. And, and they're stories that are infused with desire, longing, passion. There's stories about treasures and coins, lost sons, wedding banquets. Things that people wanted more than they'd ever wanted anything before. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have a couple of these stories. Matthew, Matthew 13, Jesus said this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. It's this pearl of great price. That's what the kingdom's like. Because God is making up there, come down here. He's setting the world right. That's it. And it's of incredible value. Another story Jesus told, no story was too, too extreme, is a story about desire. It's just right before what I read, verse 44. 
Jesus says, to what shall I compare the kingdom? If the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. It's kind of an odd story to tell about the kingdom of God, really. Okay, well, why does this guy hide the treasure again after finding it? What a selfish thing to do, right? Why does he do that? And we remember, well, Jesus really wasn't teaching about real estate ethics here. His focus here is that phrase, the key phrase in the story, the man found this present and he hid it again in what? In his incredible joy. He sold everything he had. He devoted everything in his great joy. It's not like it was some sacrifice for him. I mean, it's more like who wouldn't sell everything they've got? Who doesn't amount to anything? It doesn't amount to anything compared to the treasure of this pearl, this treasure of great price. That's no sacrifice. It's just wisdom, right? I mean, what else are you going to invest your life in? I mean, the point Jesus made again and again is that when somebody really gets the kingdom, when they begin to understand the life Christ is offering, they want it more than everything, so Jesus, Jesus told story after story to illustrate this kind of desire. I mean, to what shall I compare the kingdom, Jesus said. And he said, it's, it's kind of like these little kids you see who are running up to me with pure joy and laughter just to be with me. The, the kingdom's like a woman who loses a valuable coin and she searches high and low to find it. And when she finally finds it, she invites the whole village in to rejoice with her. Oh, to what can I compare the kingdom? <laughs> Before getting married, I was serving as a volunteer in our youth group at a church in Chicago. And there was a new girl from out of town who also just started to help out on the youth staff. I'd, I'd seen her in church before and I knew, I wanna know her. <laughs> and, and so for one of our next youth events, it was a costume party, I, I dressed up as a cowboy. You know, six shooter, cowboy hat. I mean, it was a cool cowboy. It was like Clint Eastwood, right? Not like the village people, just so you have the right picture. And, and we all met at the church, and, and then we're going to get in cars and, and drive the home where the party was. So I was thinking ahead, and I arranged things so that this other youth volunteer, Jillian McLaren, would sit beside me in the car I was driving. You know? Yeah. And, and so when any other youth volunteer would start to get in my car, it'd be like, back seat, get out of here. I mean, I was a real fine youth worker, right? Kids get away, I've got this babe I want to sit beside me. And all my efforts paid off. With, with Jillian sitting right beside me, along with, it was perfect, two other youth staff in our front seat. So she was like crunched against my six-shooter here, right by my side. I mean, I was shameless, but it worked. I mean, wonderful wife now, two kids, praise God. So what shall I compare the kingdom? It's like a, a pastor in training who wanted to know a girl so badly, he twisted, manipulated circumstances just to be near her. Those are kind of the stories of desire that Jesus would tell again and again. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a $460 million lottery ticket that finally pays off. It, it's like the flames finally coming home with the Stanley Cup. <laughs> to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? And then Jesus asks the question, then he comes up with story after story, these kind of wild, earthy, crazy, whatever stories, to, to demonstrate the fact that when people finally understand what's at stake, what's being offered, they want this more than anything they've ever wanted. 
And, and once there was a day when people got it and, and they devoted themselves to the kingdom. Now, do, does this kingdom require self-denial? Absolutely. All the time, every day. In fact, Jesus talked about this a lot. You, you, you have to die to a lot of desires, Jesus said, to a lot of ambitions, all that kind of stuff. That Dallas Willard put it this way. The self-denial that Jesus calls us to is always to surrender to a lesser, dying, petty, futile self for a greater eternal one. Let me read that again. The self-denial Jesus calls us to every day, all the time, is always the surrender of a lesser, dying, petty, futile self for a greater eternal one. The person God intended to create you to be. I mean, here's the secret in this, friends. Every longing you have or think you have, every ache in your heart when you think you desire more stuff or more pleasure or more success or to be more attractive or a bigger house or more applause, what you are really crying out for, Jesus says, is for the kingdom of God to come into your life. But you must decide about this what you will. And in the Acts 2 church, they were doing this. They, they were seeking the kingdom. Let me read it for us again. In fact, let me read it from the message translation. This is what took place after the spirit had come upon the disciples like a mighty wind. And then Peter went out and started telling the crowd that had, crowd that had gathered there about Jesus. And this is what we read, Acts 2 verse 41. This is a message translation. That day, the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, about 3,000 took Peter his word. They were baptized, they signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. And everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in wonderful harmony, harmony holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owed. They pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. And they followed this daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal of celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. And people in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. People in general, they liked what they saw. They were selling everything they had. And, and they were devoting what they had. They devoted their time, their energy, their careers, their families, their possessions, their securities, even their lives. They even devoted their lives. And they did it with joy. Understand, they weren't doing it like, oh, I gotta let go of this. They, they were doing it with laughing and dancing, winking, high-fiving, nudging each other because they could not believe they were the ones getting on the kingdom. <laughs> That's what Shavuot was about. Finally, we understand. And it was happening to them. And there were no prejudices, even though there were rich people and poor people. I mean, they had Jews and Gentiles together, side by side, men and women, slave and free. I mean, there'd never been a community like this. And when the world saw this, when the world saw people devoting themselves and God expressing himself, and that this was actually starting to happen in the world, that's why Luke says at the end of the passage, they were enjoying the favor of all the people. Isn't that great? There'd never been anything like this in the world. And in general, it says people favored them. They, they wanted what these Christ followers had. That's God's plan. I mean, for people to be genuinely transformed by his spirit. 
For the kingdom to come through, it takes people who are beginning to experience it in themselves. And, and then through them, as, it, as the kingdom starts to actually be expressed in us, and then through us, the kingdom starts breaking through into, into places like Tim Hortons and Walmart, to the Royal Bank and UFC, I mean, to Scarlet and Centennial, the Beaverbrook High Schools, and to Starbucks and Costco, Home Depot, into your neighborhood, your home. I mean, children of the kingdom, they're going out sharing Christ's love. That's a plan. And again, that's why we exist. That's why we're here. And, and I think that leads to a difficult, sobering question. I mean, if, if what Jesus said is true, if this kingdom living is supposed to be what's going on, then there's an obvious question. Why hasn't the world been breaking down the doors of churches to get in? Why has there never been a headline in the Herald that says, the most incredible news in the world ever? And we know there's not just one reason. But in part, we could say this. In part, it's because there's always a challenge in the church, in the community of faith, around what this transformed life, this kingdom life looks like. Because often, we in the church, we get off track. I mean, we, we drift, we forget. What it is we're supposed to be sharing with others. What it is we've actually received ourselves. And, and therefore, we start reducing the message of the kingdom. We start reducing the gospel. One author puts it this way. In the church, we seems we are con in the church it seems we are content with conversion when God is calling for transformation, rather than expecting the kingdom of God to revolutionize lives today, we hope it will happen in heaven tomorrow. And somewhere along the line, we swapped out Jesus' gospel that through him, we can be transformed in the citizens of the kingdom right now today for a gospel of heaven's minimal entrance requirement. And, and so we can start to live and speak and act it, as though the gospel is just about getting this ticket into heaven. But understand, when we reduce the gospel down to the minimum required to get into heaven, we settle so f for so far less than Jesus' whole vision. And we start to reduce and, and really produce, rather, the wrong kind of people. We start to produce the wrong kind of disciples. And understand, this was one of Jesus' primary struggles in his day, trying to communicate clearly what his life in the kingdom looked like because there were so many misconceptions. And, and so people would settle for kind of a different kind of life. I mean, instead of focusing on the kingdom life in community, they, they started to focus on this question. Okay, who's in and who's out? Who's, who's truly one of us, who's not? I mean, how can we tell who's really part of the kingdom? Or more, even more bluntly, how do we know who really has a ticket to heaven? How, how do we know? I mean, since it's formation by Christ, the, the church has always tended to drift towards that focus. In fact, in the time of New Testament writings, we, we know what the boundary marker became at one point. It became... Okay, you've been circumcised. Then we know if you're in and not out. Then, then we know. 
And so remember what the apostle Paul had to do with the apostle Peter, these two titans? Paul coming to Peter and confronting him to his face in front of this great church gathering, rebuking Peter and saying, why do you think the kingdom is about circumcision? Are you kidding me? And friends, understand, it doesn't matter what century or city or culture we live in. You can count on this. If, if people do not experience authentic transformation, empowered by the Spirit, by becoming more loving, joyful, peaceful people, if they don't experience authentic transformation, then it's just a matter of time before their spirituality will deteriorate into a search for simple outward distinctives to, to prop up their sense of being different from other people. You know what I mean? It happens everywhere. And I know this. I know we could just do a group discussion right here. We could have a conversation about this here right, right now. All of us from many different churches being able to say, well, this is what the boundary markers were in our church. A pastor shared the story. It has just stuck with me over the years. He said there was a man who had actually been on staff in another church, came up to him and said, isn't your church worldly? And so the pastor asked him, I mean, what do you mean by that? That's a pretty loaded term. And so this man said, well, at your church, you use contemporary music, and people in the world listen to contemporary music. At your church, you use videos, and people in the world are used to a lot of video. And then the man said this. This is basically a verbatim quote. Everybody knows that Christians are supposed to be different from other people by being more loving, more joyful, and stuff like that. And everybody knows we're not. So don't we have to do something to make ourselves look different? To put his question another way, it was this. If we can't be holy, shouldn't we at least be weird? That, that's what he was saying. And, and I know that sounds fu funny, but honestly, friends, realize that is exactly what happens. I mean, people try to follow God, live by the Spirit, and if they can't be holy, they think, well, at least I'll be weird. At least I'll be odd. I'll, I'll set up new boundary markers. I mean, if they do not experience authentic love and joy, if they're not being transformed from the inside, then they'll look to some goofy way to try to make themselves feel different from people outside the church. Because they want to feel like there's something that's got to be different. And so people set up these sometimes really goofy boundary markers. And, and sometimes they use really good things as boundary markers. For example, for me growing up, one of the boundary markers was Sabbath keeping. And I'll tell you, the, the Sabbath is a very good thing. I mean, to observe the Sabbath is very good. It's a healthy thing for us. God commanded it. Jesus never said, stop keeping the Sabbath. It's an important practice for us. But the problem was, as I grew up, people starting to use the Sabbath kind of like a hammer. I mean, to, to become smug and exclusive. And they came up all, with all these kind of different laws to make it a really mechanical, legalistic thing. So they could determine who's actually observing the Sabbath and who's not. Who's in, who's not. And they started becoming so arrogant in the thinking. I mean, I'm a Sabbath keeper. You're not. And, and forgot about considering what kind of person am I becoming by the power of the Spirit? And, and let's be clear. 
For us as a church, it is for us to say, okay, this is what we're aiming for. We're not aiming to become a people who observe rules and, not, and who know a lot. Let's understand the home run, the measure that we're after is to become disciples of Jesus who just genuinely, increasingly, passionately come to love God and love those around us through the power of the Spirit. That, that's what we're aiming towards. To, to be transformed authentically by the Spirit of Shevwat from the inside out. So let me ask, let's bring it to us. How are you doing on that one? Because it can be difficult to walk that path, can't it? I mean, life pushes us, it stresses us, it, it pulls us off track. Many years ago, when Jill and I were at a church event with our kids, where we used to live, and they were really young, they were not doing well at this event. In particular, Taylor. Taylor was tired, he was grumpy, he was fussing. And you know that feeling of just trying to get him to behave? You know, just trying to coerce him, sweating at the event, offering cookies, whatever, and, and just nothing worked. And, and I was just, I was at my wit's end. You ever been there? And, and, and Taylor had this stuffed animal that he loved. It was a teddy bear called Teddy. Jillian named him that. <laughs> so I said to Taylor, but I bet I know what you want more than anything else right now. I bet you want Teddy, don't you? And he nodded his head with tears in his eyes. And I said, well, bud, if you ever want to see Teddy alive again. <laughs> okay, that was what was in my heart. Not great kingdom parenting right there. But here's the reality. In the middle of all the stresses, challenges, insecurities of life, there's a really good question for us to ask. Is a life I'm inviting other people to live the life I'm living myself? Really? If I'm inviting the people to, to a life of spiritual vitality, according to God's word, by the Spirit, am I experiencing or living that kind of life myself? I mean, in a lot of churches... In a lot of churches, you don't have to go very far beneath the surface to find a lot of people who at the core are as anxious or as driven or unsettled or angry or envious or exhausted or greedy as everybody else in our culture. Because we've been sucked into the same kind of life as everyone else. But with Jesus, it, it wasn't that way. It was really true. And he invited people to live in this kingdom, the kingdom of God, in a life that by the Spirit could actually grow in, not perfectly, but could grow in love and, and, and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. And, and that's where Jesus lived. He actually lived that kind of life. And a problem that can, another problem that can rise up in the churches, we think, okay, we, we've got to change as people. And so we start to think we can transform people through rules. But rules, laws, can never make bad people good, right? That's what the Apostle Paul was shouting in the book of Romans. I mean, rules, they might control people a little bit. They won't change their hearts, right? No amount of rules or guidelines or programs will make loving people, true, unloving people, truly loving. 
I mean, outward stuff rules. Cannot transform hearts. Cannot transform a community. I mean, we could here put up a list of new seven rules that every one of us has to follow to make us a more loving community. (laughs) Rules won't transform us. They might get us to act a bit better outwardly. But only an inner transformation comes through the Holy Spirit of Christ himself who is poured out in the church at Shavuot. Only that can transform our hearts and our community. And that's why Paul encouraged, in a verse we're going to look at in more depth in a couple of weeks, these words in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 5.18, that's why Paul said, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because, friends, I just want us to get this. It's by living by this Holy Spirit, the gift of Shavuot, of Pentecost, that empowers and transforms us. And let's remember this. There was a time, friends, when the Holy Spirit came on a group of people and they received power. And they became so deeply committed to God, so deeply committed to one another, that the rich actually literally started sharing what they had with the poor. And people in hiding started taking off their masks, being honest about who they were, confessing their sins. They started humbling themselves to build a community of servants that was, that was so full of God's power, it transformed the world. And we're going to look more in coming weeks about how that's lived out. Because here's the questions for us. Why can't it happen again? Has the Holy Spirit lost his power? I mean, can it happen to us? Friends, can, can this happen to you? Let's pray to that end. Will you pray with me? So, Father, we come as learners, seeking to be formed by your Son through his Spirit within us, and praying, Father, you would give us a boldness, the honesty, to admit, to confess, where we're not living in line with the way you've guided, invited us to live. Would you give us a boldness, a a holy hunger to seek your kingdom and this life in your spirit, Father, we pray, so that you'd be glorified. Truly, we pray that in all these things. And we come to you as your people in the name of Jesus Christ. And again, all God's people say, amen. Amen. Let's stand together, friends.